Hello and welcome to the Guitar Hang Podcast. I'm your host, John Stancorb. Today I have the distinct privilege of stepping into the world of a guitar maestro with a truly remarkable journey. Let me introduce you to the incomparable Andy Allador. As a guitar great alongside Dickie Betts in the band Great Southern, Andy's playing has graced legendary stages worldwide. Not only is Andy a master transcriptionist, author, and revered Guitar World columnist, he's also known with close friendships with icons like Dickie Betts, Johnny Winter, and Stevie Ray Vaughan. In this exclusive interview, we'll delve into Andy's extraordinary accomplishments, his invaluable contributions to guitar education, and the inspirations behind his music. Please make sure you hit the subscribe button below and ring the bell for notifications. Now, let's hang with Andy Allador. I want to say about 15, 20 years ago, I may have uh, talked to you on the phone about something pertaining to a uh, Frank Zappa transcription. Really? I can't recall who the mutual friend was. It might have been a studio musician buddy of mine. Um, but anyway, I remember us chatting about uh, you had just transcribed um, Overnight Sensation. It was a number of years ago. It was at least 20 years yeah. ago. Yeah. I What happened was um, Hal Leonard, you know, the music publisher, had signed a publishing deal with Frank Zappa with Gail you know, Frank's wife, widow. And so, because they have no effing idea what they're doing, Hal Leonard. <laughs> right. So, oh, well, we just signed Frank Zappa to a print deal. Like, what should we do? And we want to do matching folios, which meant books that were spe- specific albums. And they're like, he has 68 albums, or, you know, whatever, however many albums he has. So what should we do? And I said, well, I think we should start with four. We should do Hot Rats first. Right. And I mean, you know, it's a little subjective, but I was just, you know, this is fun for the podcast. Could be. (laughs) You'll tell me if you think it's fun. I was introduced to the music of Frank Zappa in 1966 Mm -hmm. when I was 10 years old Mm -hmm. because my friend who was a weirdo like me, brought to the sixth grade dance this new record called Freak Out. Yeah. And um, I'm sorry, stuff is falling over. Um, and um, so it was really funny, you know, like it was the sixth grade dance in 1966. And I don't know, we were listening. We're 10, you know, 10 years old and playing like James Brown. And I think um, they're coming to take me away. Uh, had come out that single by Napoleon the Sixth or whatever that guy's name was, where the flip side of the single was the same record backwards. I don't know if you remember any of that. <laughs> there was some, you know, it was '66. There was some weird stuff going on, but nothing weirder than Freak Out. Sure, not yeah. And so he put it on. I loved it, and then everybody. I think they threw us out of the dance and. <laughs> You know, I was like, this is great. So anyway, all these years later, they say, what should we do? So I said, let's do Hot Rats first Mm -hmm. and then Apostrophe and then Overnight. Okay. And then it was a little bit of a walk. 
and now I feel a little differently about it. But at the time I said overnight, uh, I'm sorry, I said uh, one size fits all, just because they were sort of consecutive, you know. Right. So hot rats, apostrophe, overnight sensation, uh, one size fits all. Right. I mean, overnight comes before apostrophe. I don't want anybody writing nasty letters. But <laughs> right. I just thought that, you know, if you're going to do two, hot rats, apostrophe. Yeah. So I did those two. And um, I made like a dollar a week. Like it was so hard. But um, Dweezil approved the transcriptions at the time. And I did speak with Gail a few times on the phone. And I have to say she was terrific. And um, so that's when it was. And another just sort of fun um uh, trivia thing or whatever you want to call it detail of this is when they put out the hot rats book the transcription book the cover of the book looked old and used and had a coffee ring on it and people thought i thought i was buying a new book like why does it look do you know the story though well um, i can only guess that they wanted it to look like you know a an album might look that that you had in the house well, you're right, but it, it was more specific. It was that they had asked, or he had volunteered, Matt Granick from uh, oh, for the Simpsons. The Simpsons <laughs> had asked or was tapped to write the introduction because he was such a Frank Zappa fan. That was his album. It was a replica of his album. Oh, I see. So his own album had a coffee ring. And he, so he said, like, the, you'll notice the cover of this book, some, something along the lines of, it's because it's my album. Right. <laughs> my copy. This is my copy of Hot Rats. With with the coffee ring. <laughs> the coffee ring, and it's all discolored. And, right. And I'll give you one more, I'll give you one more thing, only because it is really f cool. In 1985, when I had sort of newly become the music editor of uh, Guitar for the Practicing Musician, they asked me to do a transcription of Peaches and Regalia. And so, and they told me that it had to be approved by Frank, so that I was going to do it, and then we were, they were going to send it to Frank. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, I mean, you know, I met Frank once. It was great. He was, the he was so nice. And um, so I was flipping out, you know. Of course I wanted you know, this is the guy, right? So coincidentally enough, they had asked Steve Vai around that time to interview Frank for the magazine, 1985. Um, so they gave me the a copy of the cassette. And one of the first things Steve says to Frank, he says, you know, they're running a transcription of Peaches in the magazine. And Frank goes, I know, they sent it to me. And Steve goes, how's it look? And Frank goes, it looks good. And I was like, that's it. That, yeah. If you hear nothing else that Frank said that it looks good. Frank said it looked good. Yeah. Yeah, that's... And the uh, the one thing about transcribing those particular albums is that um, while it's very complex, very dense, uh, it's not exactly man from utopia dense. You know, I mean, in terms of, I mean, it it seems like those, there's a lot of 
interesting rhythmic things happening, nested rhythms, all sorts of wild and crazy stuff, but very accessible melodies. Um, I would agree to a certain extent. Um, you know, I mean, um, what you one thing you're making me think of is, and again for Zappophiles, you know, this is kind of a fun thing. I was listening to six months ago or something. Uh, Wild Love from um, Cheek Your Booty. Yeah. And there's this section. Like whatever it is. And then it goes, it's like 45 seconds long. And then they go into this. They go into this groove. You know. Later in the evening, leaves will fall, leaves will fall. You know, this whole other thing. And, um, but there was something about that, you know, modern classical Zappa instrumental section that sounded familiar to me. So I text Steve I and um, Mike Keneally. And I say, is it just me? Am I crazy? Or does this instrumental... Uh, you know, uh, interlude exist anywhere else. And they both wrote back right away with different things. Um, but Mike Keneally was correct. But Steve was a little unsure, but without getting going too, too, too nuts. Basically, it's the theme from Sinister Footwear 2. Sinister Footwear 3 they all come from partially from guitar solos so Sinister Footwear 3 for you crazy Zappa files out there hey, hey, Persona hey. would you would you mind just revert you, you kind of locked up there so you said that that Mike said it was it kind of went out on the audio I'll do it I'll say it again okay so um so I had texted Steve I and um, Mike Keneally and they both wrote back right away, which was cool. And they had sort of divergent answers, but Keneally was more accurate. Steve admitted he wasn't 100% sure. He said, check with Dweezil. He said, Dweezil, Dweezil wouldn't know. But Mike knew. Mike responded right away. He said, it's Sinister Footwear 2. So more, most people are familiar with Sinister Footwear 3, the theme from Sinister Footwear Part 3. Because it's called Persona Non Grata, and it's on You Are You Is. They all sort of uh, had their um, genesis from guitar solos. So, but I had to look it up. Um, and it was actually hard to find Sinister Footwear 2. And then there is a Sinister Footwear 1. Right. And the genealogy of this one piece of music... And like I said, I was listening to Wild Love and I heard this thing. Yeah. And I went, well, you know, Frank has a lot of things that sound like this. Like, for instance, that's why Steve said, I think this is called Rollo Interior. And it's from 72. Yeah. But it's not, it wasn't. Rollo Interior is down Dan Alfonso. Right. Oh, hang on. 
I'm going to the Y to check it out. I'm okay. Going. All right. Bye. I'll talk in a little bit. I might get a pedicure. Okay. All right, babe. So, um, you're talking Rollo Interior. Rollo Interior. So, so, Steve, as I said, was unsure, but it was one of the first things he had to learn. But I was amazed that it went all the way back to 72. It was really early. Is that the Ruth Underwood thing that has all the two chords in it? There was a, remember, there was a, I remember reading it maybe seeing an interview with Ruth, she was talking about Rollo and she had received this piece of music and it was just all these two chords and she had played through some of it. But yeah. I'm yeah. I'm not sure that that, whether that was Rollo, um, because she talks about the black page a lot and they play the black page, her and Joe Travers in the documentary, okay. Zappa, the Alex Winter documentary, which is amazing, but you're right. I don't remember if that's the one with the sus chords, sus two chords. But she does talk about Rollo Interior. But Rollo Interior ended up in St. Alfonso's. Right. But that's why Steve was like, I'm not, you know, I don't think I'm right. And ultimately, I did look up the genealogy, the complete history of Sinister Footwear 2. <laughs> this is what's so amazing about Frank. Like, we all know he's a genius. Right. But we're taking one like molecule of a thing that is extracted from another thing that's extracted from another thing. This is one of hundreds and hundreds of things that Frank has done. Right. And so it turns out that Sinister Footwear 2 was just this thing he wrote, like among the many, many things that he wrote. And it went through all of these different incarnations. And at one point it was just called, it was just referred to as C instruments because somebody had written at the top of the page for C instruments because it wasn't written in a transposing manner. Right. So without recounting all of that, which I can't remember anyway, it's just so, compli <laughs> right. it's so complicated. But what was fun was be being able to ask guys like Mike and Steve. Oh, yeah. No. And Steve was like, um, I commend you on your sleuthing. <laughs> yeah. I, it, I think it would be very interesting to uh, put some context to this. At the moment that you set out to transcribe those works or any of the other stuff, I, I know that you've done some Randy Rhodes things, quite a vast amount of things that you've transcribed. You were doing it in a day where there was probably half-speed cassette decks. At, we need to we need to go before that. Even before that, so I, I don't think any any modern guitar player that's sitting with their laptop that has any kind of uh, riff station looping device can or YouTube. Or, YouTube or YouTube. Yeah, you can change the speed on YouTube. It's it was incredibly difficult to transcribe stuff off of vinyl or it was to say painstaking just doesn't cut it. No, it doesn't. But, you know, it's like the uh, why, you know, it's the Dana Carvey, uh, Frankie old man. <laughs> right. back in my day in my day <laughs> right. back in my you know we had to walk to 
to school six miles uphill in the snow both ways, you know, stuff like that. And my favorite one from Dana Carvey, he would say, uh, you know, why in my day, you know, we didn't have those thin latex condoms where you could feel everything. We had a, we had a rabbit pelt and, and we broke. And you had to use the same rabbit pelt all the time. You couldn't feel anything. And, and we liked it. It's just the way it should have stayed. You know, things were better. Yeah. So I'll just tell you this because it's fun. You know, when I was fun, I I think it's fun. In 1972, I was 16 and my drummer's older brother took me and him to see, took us to Carnegie Hall, July of 72. It was called um, Newport Jazz Festival at Carnegie Hall. And it was Cannibal Adderley Quintet. And some new band called the Mob Vision Orchestra. Oh, yeah. You know, 72. They had one album that had just come out, In Around and Flame. And so, um, you know, uh, I'm 16, sitting in the balcony, the first balcony, great seats right in the center. Cannibal Adderley was amazing. Oscar Peterson was amazing. And then this group comes out, and there's like a clear giant drum set with a gong. And the drummer looks like the Hulk. Like, <laughs> Boy, come on. But he's, but he's, but yeah. he's a black guy. Yeah. And it, it's my memory, he was wearing a vest, and you could see all his muscles. And, I, and he just came, just him walking out, I was like, man, like, what's up with that dude? Something's up with that dude. And then the whole group looked like they didn't even belong together. Like, they just. Yeah, Rick Laird. And the, yeah. I mean, Rick looked like John. They would wear white yeah. you know, suits, but. Jan Hammer kind of looked like an accountant. <laughs> yeah. And then um, Jerry yeah. Goodman had like all this hair. Right, yeah. Like it was like, and then McLaughlin had short hair and a double neck. And it was just, like, the, like, like before they played a note, it was like, you just looked at them and you were like, yeah, what the hell is this? Something's going to happen. And then they hit the first chord of Meeting of the Spirits. And, um, but anyhow, we bought the record, and so just to go back, yeah. me and my drummer, you know, we're trying to learn Vital Transformation. And we're like, this is impossible. So he goes, put the turntable on 16. Yeah. So this is the earliest version of How to Slow Shit Down. So it, on 16, it went... Bum. And I was like, I could hear that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I could play that. Yeah, it's on now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All I have to do is do it twice as fast, but we'll do it. Yeah. So the earliest days of transcribing for magazines, I had a task in Real to Real, which I broke numerous times. Because I don't think you're supposed to do yeah. that with a transport. And so, um, but you're right, you know. Uh, and then, you know, way before that, you know, when I, like that, uh, I mentioned 1972. By 74, I had my own band and I was obsessed with Hendrix. So, you know, if you're old enough, you remember lifting the needle like a thousand times. Right. Trying to get good enough so that you could lift it and put it back down, like in the same spot, you know. And 
So, you know, I tell students still, still to this day, there's nothing like regular old ear training. Yeah, it's the best. You know? But I also think all's fair in love and war. You know, it, I use half speed on YouTube. You know, if I'm trying to figure out John Schofield riffs or something that are like so difficult to hear and I want to get the pitches, you know, so, right. you know, it's all, it, I mean, it's still your ear. You're still. Right. So, um, I don't know, you know, every, it's different for every generation. In the end, it comes down to, you know, what you want to get out of it, how serious you are. It's up to each person. You you get out of it what you put in. So some people say, like a guy just yesterday, he had, he's in his 60s. He's never played a note in his life. He's never played an instrument. And he just decided, you know what, I, I think I'd like to try to play. Like, am I, is it silly for me to do this at 64 years old? And I said, no, because you love music. So don't think about any, like, just, just start to learn songs and play them. Right. Because it's daunting, you know, to think, oh, God, like, am I going to have to learn skills and theory and, it brings. It makes me think of a Frank Zappa quote where somebody asked him, "You know, if you want to be a serious musician, what should you start with, Jimmy Reed? You know, or should you just right away learn music theory? And, you know, in a very serious way." Um, and Frank's answer was. You know, you should do what you want. You know, like if you like playing Elmer James songs, like play Elmer James songs. Yeah. So, anyhow, that's what I would say to anybody today. You know, um, if you're serious, I guess the main point is, if you're if you're serious, you'll develop. You'll find the way to develop your musicianship in the way that's going to help you. You know, get where you want to go. Mm-hmm. It's it's exciting to think that because uh, we're essentially contemporaries, you might be a little bit. I was born sixty five, but be that as it may, we came up in a period of time where, within a rough ten or fifteen year period, you were able to, especially growing up in New York, you're likely to be able to see Kenny Burrell, Pat Martino, uh, Al Demiola, John McLaughlin, uh, but then see Jeff Beck, Johnny Winter. Dwayne Allman, uh, Miles Davis, uh, all in that period of time, I, I can't imagine that there will ever be anything more fertile than that, not only for guitar, but just musicians in general. That'll never happen again. And we were right there in it. Where are you from, John? Cincinnati, Ohio. So okay. I grew up, my first musical influences were... Um, Cincinnati's kind of proud of their funk heritage, you know, Bootsy Collins, James Brown recorded their King Studios and, um, you know, in, in the Ohio era, you had the Ohio players, uh, Roger Troutman, all that kind of stuff. My first guitar hero was... What about, what about Rick Derringer? 
Rick Darren. Yeah, he was he was from a little north, but but oh, an Ohioan. Yeah, I think I think of him as Cincinnati, but I'm probably I'm I guess I'm not correct. Yeah, but I mean, it, we consider uh, they had the state anthem "Hang on, Sloopy" when he was with the McCoys. But I first my first hero guitar hero was Ernie Isley, and then I yeah, Hend- Hendrix later, and I thought, man, he's stealing all Ernie's stuff. I didn't, I didn't realize it was a little bit. Back I got to play with. I got to play with Ernie and hang out with Ernie on one one of the Jimi Hendrix tribute tours. Yeah, and he's the nicest person in the world. Yeah, he plays great. He's just the coolest. So, um, whenever anybody mentions Cincinnati, I yeah. have to mention Bogarts. Bogarts, yeah, played there. I, I performed with the Pink Floyd tribute group. Uh, Signs of Life, the American Pink Floyd. We've been touring around for 15 years. We played there, but that I've seen Bob Dylan there. Prince has played there. The Police played an after-show party there. Wow! It's the yeah, it's the uh, Seminole Rock. I I I know very little about Cincinnati, so I only know Bogarts because my second gig with Dickie Betts when I joined his band in 2005, second or third gig was Bogarts, and then there was a vintage guitar shop like next door or yeah, Mike's music. And so a guy I've gotten to know very well who I met decades ago, but in recent years we've become really good friends is Bono, Joe Bonamassa. Yeah. And so Joe is so funny. Cause I, we were somehow Cincinnati came up and I go, do you know that guitar? Show? And he was like, Mike's music. Like I've been in there cause it's Bonamassa. So, Oh yeah. Yeah. He's like, he could probably, you know, that's part of the DNA of Mike's music, like in him. <laughs> right. And I told him this, I'll tell you just because it's funny. It's 2005 and I go in and I was like, this place is awesome. And I see a guitar that I've always wanted. A 66 Epiphone Wilshire Batwing headstock. Yeah. Why do I want the guitar? Because Johnny Winter played one for like one year. Yeah. In 1970. And they want like $6,500 for it. Wow. And I was like, no one wants this. Like, but me. <laughs> like, no one even knows what it is or why they would. I mean, that's not true. But that's what was going through my mind. Like, why is it so expensive? Like, who who wants an Epiphone Wilshire besides me? Right. Yeah. I guess somebody. Yeah, I don't, I don't get that whole uh, vintage. I mean, I... The closest that I have to this is a, an Andy Summers style guitar, uh, but it's a relic. It's a Nash. Oh, great guitar! I, I love Nash guitars. Yeah, but it, uh, it's fantastic. So I, I've never really gotten into the whole vintage world. But let me go back to your point, which was growing up in New York and that fertile Renaissance. You know, I mean, I just missed getting to go to Woodstock. So, like the whole. But I've talked about it a lot, you know. Um, I was born in 56, so I'm 10 in 1966. And so if we go back to 63, when I'm 7, and you're starting to take things in and understand them more than you, when you're 7, more than you did when you were 6. And then the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, you know, in 1963, when I was seven, so like 
you know, all of this starts waking up inside of you and all these connections. And in those days, you had something like the Beatles and Beatlemania, but you also had, you know, for whatever reason, uh, there was a, a heightened awareness to um, the socio-political scene that was going on and the connection between music and folk music right. and protest music and civil rights and politics. And, you know, Dylan, Bob Dylan was a big part of that. You know, he was a figurehead of that. You know, oh, what's the meaning of hard rain's going to fall? You know, um, what's the meaning of blowing in the wind? You know, like right. that these are things you need to think about. And um, Russianistic happening in music too like if you think of leonard cohen and suzanne and and right. you know music was was changing a lot but there was a connection to the larger the world at large and more more important things than just a record you know right. the new monkeys record or something. <laughs> so um so coming out of that um it was an amazing time, but you know, like I've had the opportunity to speak to so many different people about this, like talking to Jimmy Vaughn about it. Jimmy's five years older than me. He was born in 51, but to talk about like, um, the early sixties and rock and roll was like this new thing. And before the Beatles showed up, you had all these great records um, by the Beach Boys and like Dang Me by Roger Miller. And, you know, you could go back and just look at Billboard 1962. There's like, there's so many great records, like terrific records. Yeah. And popular music was changing very quickly. And, um, but also was cult, you know, culture. You know, I could go on and on, and I, I know I'm doing it, but post-World War II, America, the burgeoning of this new thing called the middle class and white kids being attracted to black music, and then California culture with cars, and then ultimately guitars with Fender. You right. know, the early Fender ads was a guy on a surfboard surfing while he's playing a Stratocaster. <laughs> yes. You know, Leo was smart. He was like, I'm going to marry my, the um, marketability of my instruments to youth culture, you know, however I can do it. Beach blanket, bingo, whatever it might be. Right, yeah. That's the way to go. And then you had Big Daddy Roth and these customized cars and Rat Fink and like it was just sort of everything was like made for kids and for a young mind right and so jimmy vaughn talked about it, it was like it all was the same stuff like car magazines were as much fun as music magazines and listening to buying discovering a new record right you know reading about how to customize a night how to customize a 1940 ford and I was just saying to my friend yesterday, like the the other thing about Leo, which is cool, is like this is this thing 
I I, I bought this in '73. It's put together with screws. Yeah. So it's begging you to take it apart if you're one of those kind of people. It's just asking you to get a <laughs> screwdriver and take it, which is the first thing I did when I got my guitar, was I just took it apart completely and then put it back just to see what it was. You can't do that with a Gibson. Right. But um, so all of these things, you know, it's just a, it was an amazing time, uh, social, politically. Uh, my sister's three years older in 1968, so she's 15. And this French kid comes that she met somewhere, comes to visit her. He's 17, and he's sitting in her room telling her about the Paris riots in 1968. Right. It just happened. Right. And I'm hearing this. Right. You know, and I'm 12. And so, I don't know. It was a very charged atmosphere. And yeah. from that, I think they just went hand in hand. And yeah. art, and, you know, I'm a big movie buff. So, like, the impact of European cinema on. American cinema at the time was uh, uh, significant with uh, Truffaut and Fellini and uh, Antonioni and all that stuff. So that was, the Beatles were a perfect example. What can we do that nobody did? This was thrown on everyone to push the boundaries. So yeah, I got to see, I got to study with Pat Martino. I didn't even, it wasn't just that I got to go see him. Right. I got to study with him and sit with him in his apartment. It was like completely mind blowing forever. And to see John McLaughlin and my Vision Orchestra in 72 and 73 on the Birds of Fire tour. Right. Um, uh, and you know, there's a lot of guys I didn't get to see, unfortunately, but a lot of guys I did. I'm yeah. going to the Vanguard you know, to see Dexter Gordon or Pat Metheny or um, Charlie Hayden, Dewey Redman. Um, so New York is a good place to be. And, you know, what I will say, though, now, all, all these years later, for my son, who's 31 years old, um, this generation, his generation, they get to see it all sort of on this even plane. It's sort of like if you went to a buffet. Right. And everything was just there. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like, oh, this happened then 60 years ago. Because it, you could listen to Third Stone from the Sun now for the first time in your life. Yeah. And experience, and it, and it be a new experience. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think that's what's so devastating is that if you think of are you experienced and think what was happening prior to that. I mean, besides freak out and some of the other things that were happening, most of the landscape of guitar was going to be stuff like the Ventures. If you're if you're in Britain, you're listening to Hank Marvin 
it's just kind of fun partying stuff. You might hear Dwayne Eddy or Link Ray rumble or something, but generally speaking, it was a fairly fairly fun, relaxed landscape. I can't imagine what it would be like to hear um, Are You Experienced for the that that track Are You Experienced or Purple Haze or any of. I mean, it's like nothing that ever. Can, it was like even more massive than when Eddie came on the scene because there was nothing like that at all. I, I just can't imagine for a, a young guitar player what that would have been like. Well, I can tell you that, um, you know, for me, it, it was the first day of seventh grade in 1967 and I was 11 years old. First day at a new school at the junior high school. And, um, and I had decided, uh, you know, that I would go to my friend's house and it's eight o'clock in the morning, you know, like he lived pretty much across the street from the junior high school, Ronald Perch. So I would go to, I was going to go to Ronald's house just to walk over to school together. And, and he was kind of a big guy, you know, I mean, we're 11 years old. But he, you wouldn't think of him as the harbinger of like the cutting edge of music. Right. His sister was my sister's age. It turned out his sister really was like, she was on it, man. Like, so I don't know. She was probably helpful. But it's 8 a.m. and I walk in and he goes, oh, man, you got to hear this record. Like, this is the greatest music ever that ever existed. And he puts on Purple Haze. And he's like, isn't it amazing? And I said, I don't know. Like, I don't know what I'm hearing. Because it literally sounded like the room was spinning. Especially when you get to the end. Oh, yeah. It does sound like it's spinning. Yeah. You know, it's just the voices, those disembodied voices going purple. His, and then he's got the sped up guitars going, you know. Yeah. And I mean, I was a huge Beatle fan and a Dylan fan at that point. I was listening to a lot of music right. by then. But uh, he was already like, this is the greatest music. That's it. Right. I wasn't sold yet because I was like, I, I can't even take it in. Like, it's. Yeah, it's too. It's right. so new. It's so unique. And then the second song is Manic Depression. It's like. <laughs> like, what come on so you know but but what it's i feel the same way about uh all the music that i've heard that when it was new um the excitement that's in the charlie parker records from 1947 48 and the birth of bebop can't, that can't be extracted from the record. The the musicians themselves have never heard music like this. So they are as excited as everybody else, I think. Right. Like, I think when you listen to Manic Depression, you hear three guys playing like, man, <laughs> we've never fucking heard shit like this. And Cream. Cream, too. All this, you know, it's all this live Cream bootlegs that are just... Like one of my favorites is the Grandy Ballroom, March of 68. 
you know, like, that was their whole point. Like, we are going to mess this shit up, like, as much as we can. Like, it needs to be. I mean, Ginger Baker, in the documentary, he would say, we would play, and our attitude was, cop this. Right. <laughs> you know, we're rock and roll guys playing like jazz guys, you know, because we are just playing with complete freedom, as complete as we can within our capabilities. And so, um, uh, so I guess my point is only that, like John, it's interesting. Robin Trower said something interesting to me once. He said the first incarnation of any style of music is always the best, right? Because every uh, iteration iteration that follows is um, building on something that at at first was completely new and different. And it's interesting coming from Robin Trower, a guy accused of copying, you know, Hendrix. And he's saying, oh, it's the first iteration is always the greatest thing of all and everything else falls away short. Right. But he he was talking about the first iteration of rock and roll was rockabilly. And he said the excitement that you hear in like Elvis's Sun Sessions. Yeah. And, and Gene Vincent and and he's British, you know, so yeah. the all the British guys, you know, like Jimmy Page and Richie Blackmore and Jeff Beck yeah. um, have all talked about you know, they heard Rockabilly in Les Paul. Yeah, Cliff Gallup and that yeah, that whole Yeah, and it was like well, what what is this? Like this is, and Jimmy Vaughn mentioned to me a, a record called Space Guitar by Buddy Guy. Uh, no, 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 sorry, Johnny Guitar Watson. Space Guitar is from 1958 or something. Yeah, and it's as crazy sounding as like anything by Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, but it was 1958. It's crazy. It's just purposely. Or I don't know if you read the Sam Phillips book, which is a great book by Pete around like the man who invented rock and roll and Sam Phillips whole thing was, you know, like the whole thing of like, let's get gone. Let's get <laughs> way out. You right. know, like, what does that mean? You know, you know, like Carl Perkins, you know, crazy man. It's gotta be crazy. <laughs> you know, um, I think, uh, you know, Billy Riley and the Spaceman or something had a yeah. record. That, you know, Sam Phillips' whole thing was like, that's what that's what we need to be doing. Right. Like, Put make records where people go, like, these people are crazy. <laughs> right. Yeah, like uh, a pop version of Sun Ra or something. Yeah, like, it has to be nuts. Like, like let's, so that's what's so cool. Let's capture that craziness. Get it on the record. Yeah. And um, so, uh, I mean, you know, every time people say, well, it doesn't exist today or it's a rarity. I mean, that may be the case. We can't go back in time, you yeah. know. We can't. And then you, we don't know what it's like to be 20 years old today. Yeah. Sure. So, 
that's the beauty of it to me is to a 10 year old or a 12 year old today, they're in that phase that we were in at that time. I think the, um, the thing that seems a little bit different is that there's so many things vying for a 12 year old's attention right now. And for us, uh, if we didn't have music, we, we would have sports. And if we weren't sp sports kids, we might have been introverted watching TV or reading books or whatever. But the point, there's just not a lot on TV. You'd have to seek out things. And, and at your best, you might get a cool book to read or a nice album to listen to. If you had older siblings, you might be able to be hip to some of the newer stuff that's coming out. But there's just not that much. It was... It was not as technicolor as it is now. It seemed pretty, I guess at the time, maybe it seemed like it was, but compared to what kids have now, there's so much, I can't imagine how anybody that's 12 could get turned on by Dwayne Allman. Well, they are, but, but the point that you make, which is very, very valid is, for quite a while now, like for my children's entire lives, it's just been pure information overload. Right. And this device that might as well be called crack because it's so addictive, even for guys our generation, I pick up that phone a hundred times a day more than I would like for no, <laughs> for no good reason. Right. You know? And, um, it's funny, I remember reading like Wuthering Heights or something when I was 15. So in 1971, I'm reading about what it was like in the 1700s or 1800s, whatever, whatever era Wuthering Heights is set. And for people at the time, like the nearest neighbor was like three miles away. Right. And there was no telephones or TVs or record players or anything like that. And I was like, man, that must have been great. <laughs> because it was just you and your thoughts. Like, how wonderful is that? Right. You know, like, hey, maybe I'll, like, make a painting. You have to be like, you had to, you know, you were left to your own devices. Yeah. Which is a good thing. Yeah. Nowadays, good luck finding a square inch for your own devices if, if you have any. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, all of those spaces get filled with things we don't want. Right. Like doing podcasts. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, well, the great thing, uh, it, it, it's, <laughs> it's the most informative, enjoyable thing to talk to uh, a guitar player whose career that you followed or known for a while. And, 100% of the folks that I've interviewed have been incredibly generous and for and they all but everybody has a different story whether it's you or Dave Dave Gregory from XTC or Carl Verheyen or Andy Timmons or next week it's Oz Noy, Dweezil Zappa, Mike Keneally, any so nice wonderful people with their time oh, yeah. the stories are fabulous uh and each one is exciting in its own way I'm I'm thrilled to talk to somebody that came up in the era that you did and and spent a lot of time getting to talk to people for a publication like Guitar for the Practicing Musician or Guitar World or whatever, and then to spend time playing with uh, 
uh, somebody like Dickey, you know, that, that, that is really, to me, there's nothing more exciting than hearing about these stories. And it translates to the people that check out the podcast. It's, Oh yeah, no, it's, listen, I, I, uh, I think it's terrific, um, that, you know, you're doing the podcast that you're doing and all these people are fascinating people, um, with very interesting tales to tell each person. Um, and it does keep that thing alive of that, you know, the impressions of each individual person, um, are very, very valid and important and can tell us a lot about life at large. If you, if, if you want to take it in that way, if you're, if you're, if that's in the realm of the things that you're interested in, you know, it's fascinating to, and I feel very lucky. So I should say, I feel very lucky. I became a writer and I got to meet and talk to, and then in a variety of cases become friends with, you know, some of the greatest guitar players ever, you know, um, I saw John Schofield play for the first time in 1978 and I talked to him that night because I was such a fan. And then I used to just, because he lived in New York and I lived in New York, I would go see him play. There was a period of time in 1980 I lived in the West Village. So if he was playing 7th Avenue South or Sweet Basils or anywhere, like I'd go every night, you know? And then when I finally interviewed him, in, I don't know, 85 or 6, I knocked on his door and he opened the door and he goes, you look really familiar. And I go, I've seen you play like 200 times. <laughs> <laughs> and he's become a friend and he's come and sat in with my band and, you know, it's like, but I mean, I got, I became friends with Johnny Winter. Yeah. And would sit in his house and play guitars with him. And Johnny Winter to me was like, if Hendrix was here, you know, then here was everybody else. Yeah. Like Hendrix was the one for me. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, Johnny Winter, Richie Blackmore, Dwayne Allman, Dickie Betts, you know, within the blues rock world. So to get to know Johnny Winter. Oh, yeah. Go to his hat. Like it was, it, didn't make, it made no sense to me <laughs> at all. Like, and he was hilarious. And so he called me up one time. It was so funny. I was out, you know, I hope people don't hear this and go, why does this guy keep dropping names? But, you know, hopefully they're fun stories. They'll know from your, they'll know from your bio who you, who you are. So it's not name dropping. They can be as offended as they like. I, I don't mind. I'm outside raking leaves. And the cell phone rings. Hey, it's Paul. It's Johnny's manager. He goes, hey, it's Paul. We're on the road. Johnny wants to talk to you. I'm like, all right. And Johnny and Dickie Best are very similar, like almost exactly the same age, same era. You know, Dickie was born at the end of 43, Johnny at the beginning of 44. They knew they knew each other very well. They're both pretty intense people. Big egos. Very super competitive I mean, like, 
That's why they're two of the greatest guitar players that ever lived. You know, like, I mean, all of that. Intensity is there. Anyway, they both hate the phone. That's one thing they had in common. They hate cell phones. You learn quickly that you can't lend Dickie Betts your cell phone because he'll say, oh, hey, can I use your cell phone? And he'll take it. And then when he's done, he'll just, like, throw it into the bushes. <laughs> and you'll go later go, hey, Dickie, where's my cell phone? He's like, I don't know. Well, you borrowed my cell phone. Do you know where it is? No. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks a lot. So I'm outside. Cell phone rings. I'm raking leaves. Hey, Andy, it's Paul. Johnny, we're on the road. Johnny wants to talk to you. So even that, John, is insane. Like Johnny Winter's calling me on my cell phone. So he goes, uh, and I had opened for him a variety of times and knew him well at this point. And he goes, hey, man, you were in my dream last night. And I go, that wasn't a dream. That was a nightmare. <laughs> and he goes, nah, man, you're in my dream and you were playing and you sounded really good. And I go, that was a dream. And then he just hung up. <laughs> oh, man. So, like, that's so crazy. Yeah. And this is the guy I saw at the garden in 1973. You know, what he called his Elvis period, where he was wearing all the rhinestones in that crazy outfit. You know, the garden was sold out. The Still Alive and Well tour, you know. Yeah. Yeah, Johnny. So, uh, so it, it's, it's been wonderful getting to talk to a whole variety of people. And, and I'll just mention one more, only because it ties into what you said earlier. A guy who I loved, who's a huge musician for me, is the bass player Charlie Hayden. He's my oh. favorite bass player. And Charlie's very, very, or was, I mean, his writing will always be very eloquent, talking about spiritual things and spiritual nature, connection, what music is, what, you know, if you could talk about it. And um, so, in a nutshell, you know, I won't paraphrase it uh, as eloquently as him, but he would say, compared to the vast grandeur of what music is, as an individual, you are nothing. Like, you're insignificant. Because music is... It's God. It's, the, it's as big as anything could be. So you, compared to the grandeur that music is, are like a speck. And when you, if you are given the uh, great opportunity to participate in music somehow, you should approach it with so much reverence, like you're being given entrance into the most beautiful church, like that's built in outer space. Um, and the privilege of being able to participate in music is, is, is the greatest privilege ever. And then he said, if you approach it in that way, you will then start to understand your personal connection and significance within that realm, in that context. 
And then you will find yourself. And that is meaningful. And he said, every person has their own fingerprints in music. You'll find your fingerprints. And it's just an incredible way to talk about it. And uh, as a musician, you no one could sound more unique or filled with uh, warmth and humanity and uh, um, every thing that is uh, a con- you know connection to the human experience. Um, you hear all that in everything Charlie plays. And so, um, so yeah, I feel really blessed, like really blessed, John, that I guess it got to meet these people and talk to them and sit with them. You know, I was staying outside town hall in 1986 to see Pat Metheny, Ornett Coleman on the song X tour. Pat Metheny, Ornett Coleman, Jack DeJanette, and Arnold Coleman, and um, Charlie. And this was like a, you know, like a big event, you know, you know, it's considered a big record and a major event. And so town hall is teeming outside, you know, with people and a cab pulls up and Charlie Hayden gets out and I had met him by then. So I got to say, Hey, Charlie. And he's like, Hey, well, hey man, how are you doing? You know, it's like, I know Charlie Hayden. Like, what are you kidding? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to, it's it, it's really nice when your heroes are able to walk among us and treat us, you know. And it it, it happens on all levels, you know. Um, Andy Timmons was saying, uh, he was talking to his son about, because uh, he gets approached from time to time when they're out. And he said, uh, his son was like, do, do you know that guy? And he goes, oh, yeah. I mean, it's like... It, it's a community. It's like there's a connection there that, that supersedes everything else. And it's just wonderful when you find out that these heroes that you had or carry with you are warm and caring individuals. And in my experience, John, I would say that, you know, without uh, exception, the people who I consider the greatest have been the nicest people also. Yeah. And that, and it dawned on me very quickly that there, there had to be a connection, had to be a reason for that. One of the nicest, most generous, congenial people you ever could meet was BB King. Yeah. <laughs> you can't be a more influential blues guitar player than BB King. There is not one that exists. Yeah. And he was so generous with his time. And always so nice, and he's just incredible to be with. Yeah. And I would say to a man, all the greatest players have, uh, you know, um, a personality filled with great warmth and humanity, and. You know, when you talk, they listen to you and then they respond in kind and you're talking to a person and it's a real experience. 
you know, meaningful experience. And so there has to be <laughs> something to that, you know. A guy who was a very strange person that I got to meet and spend a day with was A.D. Van Halen. But he was very warm, I have to say. And there was no baloney about him at all. But it was almost like he was too sensitive. I I don't want anybody to be offended by this at all. I don't mean it that way. But you could tell he was a very sensitive person. So you have on the one hand, you know, like they would say that about Hendrix, you have on the one hand like this really aggressive guitar player who's like, like when he plays, he is crushing you. But then when you sit and talk with him, he's this very sweet person who was, had no qualms about talking about his insecurities and his, um, yeah. what he viewed as his strengths and his weaknesses. And yeah. it didn't come with having a very strong ego and a very strong sense of himself. I don't think that you, I don't think he would be who he was without that. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think that's what you're struck with when you see him like, interviewed on the Dick Cavett show is just how warm and very, very sensitive and laid back and demure almost, you know, very. Oh, Jimmy. Yeah, Jimmy. That not, not really wanting to seek a lot of the adulation and hey, that kind of stuff. Very self-deprecating. and you know. Yeah, well, the best line was. Uh, Dick goes, you know, some people consider you the greatest guitar player in the world. And he's like, no, 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 And so as a joke, Cavett goes, how about you're the best guitar player in this TV studio? <laughs> and Jimmy goes, how about I'm the best guitar player sitting in this chair? Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing I love this is he said, did, did you get any ang- hate mail for the way you did the sp- play the Star Spangled Banner? And he goes, hate mail? Like, why would I get hate mail? And he goes, well, it was, you know, pretty unorthodox. And Jimmy goes, um, unorthodox? He goes, I thought it was beautiful. So people start cheering. Yeah. And Jimmy goes like this. But then he goes like this. <laughs> yeah. Sort of like, right, in the moment, like, well, you could do this. And we all know. You could do this. Yeah. (laughs) Like, it's just, it's like, it's just so much about his, it's just so terrific, you know, like in that split second. And then he goes. Yeah. (laughs) Those just listening, what I did was the peace sign. Right. But then immediately after he just put his two fingers down the other way, sort of like. Yeah. Does it matter? Matter, right. You know. Yeah. It seems like there's so many of the, the. Those uh, tragic, so-called tragic characters in, in rock and roll, whether it be Sid Barrett or Jimmy, all they want to amp up is drug overdose, or you know, in Sid's case, somebody that was just went nuts, whatever. And uh, they don't really take into considera- consideration the people that knew them, knew them as being very upbeat, warm for sure. the. In Sid's case, prior to the being sick, he was spent a lot of time being happy. 
you know, and being and having a positive, wonderful. Up, it's just very easy to create these dramas like a Marilyn Monroe thing or tragedy, or Jimi Hendrix thing or Sid Barrett, and just not think about any of the the more wonderful aspects of their persona. Well, you know, uh, when, when someone becomes so iconic and larger than life, um, the hardest thing to find out is is what they were like as, you know, regular people. Right. You know, um, because it, who's going to write about that? And the only people that can write about that are people that would see that side of the person, which is going to be not most people. And that's why so many biographies of musicians or artists, they fall so short because everything is based on their accomplishments, you know, the writing. And those are easy things to research. Yeah. When Alan Paul and I wrote the book about Steve Ray Vaughan, Alan was approached to write the book because he had written a uh, Allman Brothers book, One Way Out, which was a successful book. And they asked him, do you want to write another book? And he said he wanted to write a book about Steve Ray Vaughan, but he never met Stevie. And I had, and so he wanted to write the book with me because I had personal experiences with Stevie and interviewed him four times and got to play with him one time just in a dressing room. And we were almost the same age. He was a year and a couple months older than me. And so I could speak from personal experience. But then not only that, I'm a guitar player and I became had become really close with Double Trouble Stevie's band and had recorded with them and played shows with them. And so, um, uh, what the heck was my point going to be? Um, uh, so in writing the book, I could draw on my own personal experiences of having known, I could talk about him as a person, you know, just as a guy like Hendrix sitting in the chair with uh, Dick Cavett and you see a personality that you would never see watching Jimmy at Monterey or something like you would never, you have no idea. Um, but thank God, uh, Jimmy Vaughn, it took two years to convince him to participate in the book. He was, he didn't want to, but he decided to tell his family that they should talk to us. Before he would. It was very interesting. So I started to get phone calls from his cousins. Or through the grapevine would hear from a mutual friend. Oh, you know, uh, Jimmy told the cousins that they should talk to you for the book. And then when I would call them, they, they would say to me or Alan, you know, all these years... Anytime anybody wanted to do anything about Stevie, Jimmy would say, don't talk to that person. This is the first time he ever said, you should talk to these guys. So we were all like amazed. So we were able to put in our book that the point is the thing that's so hard to communicate is what was this person really like? There's just a person, you know, every person is unique. You can find out about once people become famous, you know, their accomplishments, their gold records and their tours and their awards and their what they said in interviews when they were famous. But 
to find out about what they were like when they were seven years old, really like, or an experience they had, that has to come from the guy that was standing next to them when it happened, you know? So we got really lucky and we, it took a long, long time, but tracking down the guys who were in his high school band, you know, like the drummer in Blackbird, Roddy Colonna. Roddy was amazing. I interviewed Roddy like seven times. Yeah. Just him. We did like 400 interviews because there were 106 people and every one of them was interviewed more than once. Yeah. And, um, and so I think that, um, that was a real blessing for that book. And, and now that it's been out for four years, people have said to us, well, I can tell you the people who knew him, like somebody like Eric Johnson or David Grissom will say, like, man, you really captured Stevie. Right. Like when I read that, I know I'm reading about the guy I knew. Right. And so that's a wonderful blessing, you know, like that, because that's the hardest thing to do. We all read biographies and the whole first 20 years of the guy's life. It's like, there's almost no insights into this person. Yeah. Did you read tune in Mark Lewison's book, uh, Beatles book? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's the perfect example of what you rarely, rarely get to see. And the back of the book said something like, pretend you don't know anything about the Beatles. That's the way to approach this book. Right. And it's 800 pages and it ends with the Ed Sullivan show. <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. And, you know, so by the time, like, we hear the Beatles, they had been performing oh, yeah. as a band for six years, like, working their ass off. Yeah. So we see this new, hey, 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 this is a new band called the Beatles. And they're on Ed Sullivan. And they're just, like, unbelievable. Yeah, they're you doing know, it. because they've been they've been doing it for years. Six hours a night in Hamburg, you know, very sleeping and five five or six people sleeping in a tiny room with two and a half beds. You know, just a real rough, almost military style training ground. Are you a fan of the Christmas records, the Beatles Christmas records? No, I mean I think they're kind of. They're kind of fun in, in, in retrospect, and I can kind of see why they did them. But, you know, at the same AI I wasn't – I didn't really get into them that much. Okay. I'm a fanatic. I love – I have, almost have them memorized. I mean, they're just amazing. I mean, they're hysterical. And yeah. even the whole notion of it, because it was so early, you know, they had a few hundred fans in yeah. 1963. You know, they had two records out, Love Me Do and – maybe one other <laughs> record. Yeah. And so somebody said, Oh, well, why don't we do like a Christmas 45 that we'll just send to the fan club members? Yeah. Cause there's like a few hundred of those. What's the big deal. And what's amazing is they kept doing them. They did them all through 70 when they had stopped taking fan club members, yeah. you know, in 1964, <laughs> like, like we already have 80,000 and a hundred thousand people that signed up for the fan club like we, we can't deal with it yeah there's a great documentary called good old frida and it's about frida kelly who ran the fan yeah. club yeah it's a fantastic documentary mary crimble mary crimble that's mary right crimble. betty grable too <laughs> that's right uh, 
you know, it's been a really gear year for us. Uh, you know, top of the pups and playing, uh, you know, for the Queen on an all variety show. <laughs> uh, yeah, their scouts uh, was in full flight. What's that? Their scouts was in full flight. Leather pedal. Yeah, and they had written, you know, there were, these things were out. The first couple are obviously written, they're reading them. And so, but John says in 1963, you know, we're so happy, you know, that, you know, uh, that you like our our type of music that for us has been our kind of music for several years already. And he says <laughs> it's in 1963. Right. But yeah. it was true. You know, by 63, they had been working at this for five years like crazy people. And so that's why they were so amazing from right. the first moment. Yeah. You know, they were like a four-headed monster. Yeah. And um, and it's just really, you know, like a group was a new thing. You know, yeah. There weren't groups. You know, there was Elvis. Self-writing, uh, you know, when you have writing intact of a group. Yeah. Right. You had, a, you had the Beach Boys. Like, there was a little bit. Yeah. For the most part, you know, the charts were individuals um, with writers, you know, who wrote for them. And, um, and I mean, you know, outside of pop at the time, you did have Bob Dylan. Right. And then you did have it a lot in country music. But, you know, I grew up in New York, so I wasn't exposed. It wasn't until later that I heard the early 60s records of, you know, George Jones or, or Merle Haggard or somebody like that, yeah. you know, that were writing, like, in the realm of country. Yeah. You know, they were writing their own songs, and they were individuals. And then we find out, you know, Johnny Cash, you know, we find out later, you know, if you were from uh, Memphis, yeah. And born 10 years earlier than me and born in 1946. Well, then that would have been your experience. You know, you would have seen and heard those guys. Yeah. So anyway, the Beatles did talk about how, and you know this from reading the book, that they felt very lucky that they had each other to help navigate this crazy life that they yeah. was, that they were thrust into i can't imagine having any other producer besides george martin and and what that would be like i mean how how would they get to the next thing well even even when george came organized them and just really kind of whipped them into shape and trying to figure out okay what kind of songs do we have who's going to sing what you know putting those pieces together because they were great frameworks of things but they weren't fully formed and Ringo's not allowed to play drums on Love Me Do and yeah. that drummer he just passed away Andy uh, yeah I want to say his name was Andy something but I could be wrong we should look it up yeah 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 I do remember yeah him not being allowed to play on the track and you know all these years later you know Ringo's Regarded as the man. 
Uh, yeah, it's sort of funny um, that uh, is, for George Martin, uh, he was like, uh, yeah, Ringo is not Andy White. Andy White, yeah. And Andy White is a fascinating guy. Um, sorry. Oh, I thought it was going to tell me. Oh, I looked up the wrong thing. Um, oh, because it gave me. Oh, there we go. Scottish drummer. Oh, he died in 2015. Um, he's best known for temporarily replacing Ringo Starr on drums for the first single, Let Me Do. Um, but yeah, Andy White's on a million records. And, um, uh, you know, who knows, you know, like Brian uh, Epstein's, uh, um, uh, whatever the word is, you know, um, secured for the Beatles, like the worst record contract in the history of life. Yeah. That they would get a hay, hay penny royalty. Right. Like not even one cent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A half cent. And then you know the Seatalb uh, thing? What? Seatalb. So Seatalb is Beatles backwards. <laughs> and this guy, okay. in like 1963 or four, said to Brian, I want to make um, swag, you know, before swag was a thing. You know, I want to make um, fan stuff. Based on the Beatles, you know, so can you, will you allow that? And what do I need to pay you? And blah, blah, blah. And Brian was like, oh, go ahead. You know, like, you don't have to give me anything. Like, like it was no. Right. No insight as to. Or thought to maybe that's going to be really lucrative someday. And so all those crazy Beatle things like the board game. What's that? Aprons and board games and cooking mitts and flip your flip your wig. Was flip your wig, wig, yeah, yeah. It, what like every anything, everything. And it was I mean the Beatle cards. I still have the Beatle cards, like the baseball cards. I have a stack like this, uh, and then fortunately they're not valuable. Right. <laughs> they printed like a million of them or something. Yeah. Um. But you know, it's just like those times. Like you just gave it away for nothing. Right. So Brian Epstein didn't know what he was doing. Like, my point is just to say, like you were talking about how lucky were they to get George Martin? Like every part of it is nuts. Right. You know, there's a book, the man who turned down the Beatles, right? The Decca records guy. Yeah. Um, you know, Jimi Hendrix couldn't get a record deal. So that's that story, which you may know is, is that Chas Chandler, who, was, you know, uh, pawning his basis to pay for the record uh, yeah. for the sessions, and it was turned down by everyone. For Hendrix, went to Chris Stamp and Kit Lambert, the, the Who's managers, and said, "I have this guy; he can't get a record deal." Like, and so in short order, I'm not going to tell the story correctly, but. 
ultimately what happened was Kit Lambert and, and, and Chris Stamp started track records. Yeah. They started a record company so they could put out a Jimi Hendrix record. Yeah. I mean, that was why. Yeah. So now Jimi Hendrix had a record deal, you know, on track records. Yeah. And then that enabled him to get signed by Reprise, Warner Brothers in the States. Yeah, the, the if early... Jimi Hendrix, if Jimi Hendrix can't get a record deal and the Beatles can't get a record deal... Right, yeah. You know, what's, what's left for the rest of it? I think at that point, they were there was such chicanery going on. They just wanted guys, cute guys with great hairdos, singing songs about puppy love and, you know, young romance and all that kind of stuff, or at the, at the best adventure cars and things like that. I mean, for Tom Wilson to take a chance on Frank the way that he did and really not know what he was getting into until he had actually heard the finished product. It was like, Oh shit, what do we do? What do we do with freak out? <laughs> Just put it out. I mean, the, the only story I remember. So, you know, it's just part of the picture was Frank saying that, you know, he thinks Tom Wilson wandered into the whiskey and the mothers happened to be playing a blues song like at that moment. Yeah. And he was like, Oh, they're long haired guys. And everybody with long hair is signing a record deal now. And it sounds like, you know, we're in on the West Coast and Jefferson Airplane have a new single. And, you know, like, like this is and the doors, you know, like this is what's happening. You know, a long haired band playing this kind of music, you know, they might as well be like he didn't know, like you know, maybe they'll be the doors. Yeah. And even the do the doors are pretty fascinating by themselves. I mean, you want to talk about weird band, like yeah. weirder than hell. Yeah. And then somehow they write this song, you know, "Light My Fire," that's like so unique and, and incredible. It becomes this amazing hit. But yes, he had no idea, Tom, until he's got these guys assembled, and Frank's like, "Okay, check out our our double album." Right. By the way, we're, our debut is going to be a double album, right. which means it's going to cost you twice as much money to yeah. produce. But by, con by contrast, I think it's beautiful and almost like an epic, perfect tale that John Hammond would discover Stevie. Considering um, the people that are not discovered, but he was the guy that kind of... Got him. I mean, he made, I, yeah, it's not too ways about it. I mean, he made Stevie's in the line of the folks that you know, Dylan and Bruce Springsteen and all the other folks. Oh, Billy Holiday and Holiday, I mean, yeah. Go go back to Charlie Christian. He was instrumental oh, yeah. in having Charlie Christian join Benny Goodman's band, and the story was Benny Goodman wasn't into it. I mean, for. You know? And just so people understand, the, 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 my understanding was that Benny Benny Goodman wasn't his initial reaction to Charlie Christian. Charlie dressed very sort of um, uh, in loud clothing, so there was supposedly he had like a purple suit and like this cra a green tie, like he looked crazy. And Benny's initial reaction, again, if anybody out there can correct me, my skewered memory is that his initial reaction was like, 
I don't need a guitar player. There aren't any guitar players, you know, that like can play. And then they just played like one song and he was like, he's in the band. Yeah. he's. Yeah, I think I'll have that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so John Hammond, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, Billie Holiday, um, you know, and then, and Chris Layton said that John's quote was, I haven't heard a musician as imbued with the blues spirit as Stevie since Robert Johnson. Yeah, and the you and you and Alan would be the leading people on the face of the planet to know this. I, I'm just somebody that I got to meet Stevie once and was a huge fan and he was everything I would hoped as a he was equal parts a gunslinger, he was equal parts a superhero, he was a a guitar, he was all that uh, rolled into one, but off stage, he was the kindest, sweetest guy. But I find his story to be the most engaging because I lived in Dallas for seven years in Grapevine, but I kind of knew the Oak Cliff area just by some folks that lived around it. And having been through there, reading the story, you spend any time there and go back to when Stevie was coming of age. That was the most rags to riches, like, and even being in Jimmy's shadow, what he did was nothing short of miraculous. And it's in the book, you know, like so many people said, uh, Stevie was the most unlikely person based on the way he lived his life to be a success. Yeah because he lived his life as a disaster and he wasn't unlike Charlie Parker where the, you know, these stories of when Charlie was on stage, he was the greatest among the greatest musicians on the planet. Yeah. But it was the second that he stepped off the stage that his life was a complete, it was just in shambles. Yeah. Not that not only did he want his own junk, but he wanted your junk too. He wanted your drug. I mean, he he wanted he wanted he was very, from what I understand, a very voracious consumer of every. He he just did not know when enough was. He just had to have it all. And you could say the same about, you know, the same can be said about Steve Ray Vaughan and 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 Charlie Parker. And Stevie said to me, he said that he had to learn that I wasn't cooler than the guy next to me because I could get higher than him. Like somehow it got all skewered in his brain that if he could live, do everything. Everything was like a throwdown. Like I said to him, it's like every aspect of life doesn't have to be an Iron Man contest. Like I'm going to play guitar heavier than anybody else. I'm going to do more drugs than anybody else. I'm going to get more fucked up than anybody else. I'm going to be more responsible than anybody ever lived. And that's who I am. Yeah. Like that is me. And there's a million quotes, but you know, one is Stevie said to me, he goes, my best thinking translated to the way I decided to live. My best thinking almost killed me. Like what I thought was the way to go was 
truthfully, the way to go straight into my grave. Yeah. And I had, and he said, I can only um, credit other people for um, uh, saving me from that and and giving me the opportunity to learn that I was wrong. Right. And there's another way to do it. Yeah. And in Charlie Parker's case, I mean, you know, um, it's the junky way, you know, um, either they find their way out or they don't. And um, more often than not, you know, the bottom is either going to be an opportunity to turn your life around or it's the end of the story. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, there are too many examples of that. Uh, the ones who the, the examples we know are famous people and oftentimes artists and musicians, but it happens every day sure. for people who are car salesmen or, you know, yeah. You know, life is difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, if you're going to live, you're going to suffer. Yeah. You know, it's 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 definitely hard to navigate. And um, and uh, we live in a culture um, that is not necessarily uh, awash with. Um, um, uh, um, uh, I don't know. Um, Self improvement, or um, you know, yield not to temptation. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, trying to find the right words. You know what I mean? I, like, I, like our our our. Maybe it's true of the world culture. It's certainly in America. Um. Everything's based on temptation. Yeah. You know. Marketing especially is uh, driven towards enticing people through temptation. You made me think of one other thing from the Hendrix Cavett interview that I always loved, though, is Cavett said, you know, how difficult is it being famous? Something like that. And Jimmy said, well, you know, it's tough because I'm surrounded by people all the time that tell me how great I am. And I know... I, it's not true. Like everything isn't great. And so it's hard to keep perspective. Like yeah. it's, you realize it's on you. Right. It's left to you to really be the one with the real perspective because you're not going to get it from somebody else. Right. Like we're all insecure. So everyone's always like uh, uh, learning about themselves by the way it's reflected back at you. But when you become super famous, what's being reflected back at you is not normal because people are not uh, um, uh, taking you in in the same way they would a normal person. Almost every famous person has talked about, I wish I could go somewhere where nobody knows who I am. And then they just talk to me like I'm a, like a guy. Right. And so, so Jimmy went off on this whole thing about, you know, it's very difficult to keep perspective. Everybody's telling you how great you are all the time. And, you know, and you know, and then he pauses and he goes, but you know, I'm digging it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, like, 
to be honest, you know, it's not that terrible. <laughs> right. There there are some some perks to it. There's some perks to being considered like the greatest musician on earth, you know. Like I'm not gonna let's not complain too much. Yeah. I, I would be interested to hear what your uh I'm sure Jeff Beck is right up there amongst the top of the top of the guitar players were, but any interesting anecdotes or experiences seeing him perform or conversationally? Well, I started working on a book and I don't know if I'm going to be able to get a book deal, but it's been discussed about all my crazy experiences because I've had a variety of experiences that come from being in a unique position of uh, being a writer and meeting these people as a writer, but also being a guitar player and, you know, being able to play up to a certain level where somebody like, um, Dickie Betts or Mitch Mitchell and Buddy Miles and Billy Cox, you know, would, or Double Troubles, Chris Layton, Tommy Shannon, you know, they would want to play with me and they would say, and this is a unique thing. It just is to be tapped to fulfill the role to a certain extent of Dwayne Allman when you're on stage with Dickie Betts or Jimi Hendrix when you're on stage with Mitch Mitchell and Buddy Miles and Billy Cox or Steve Ray Vaughan when you're with Double Trouble. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want people to think that I think I, you know, can play like those guys. And, and, and it's nothing like that. It's about being able to play with those musicians and play that music in a way that they feel good about, that they're comfortable and they say, oh, the, your approach as a guitar player and the way you play suits this music. Not, wow, you play like Dwayne Allman. Well, part of it is yet yeah, playing like Dwayne Allman or Jimi Hendrix or playing like Steve Ray Vaughan. But if it was just an emulation, it wouldn't have the music part in it, which is the most important part. You know, emulation, you know, Rich Little doing an impersonation it's fun, but it's not. And, you know, it's a dig that Steve Ray Vaughan had to hear from certain people. They would say, well, it's he's just copying Albert King too much, you know. So he was criticized for that or even for the Jimi Hendrix thing. Um, but, you know, what can you say? Everybody's different. If, you, if you're a fan enough and you listen enough, you could see that Stevie put his own twist on those things. Or Robin Trower, you know. Trower has a very distinct way of playing that is like no one else. But his sound is so taken from sort of one slice of Jimi Hendrix from Band of Gypsies that, you know, he'll forever live by the sword, die by the sword. So, um, uh, so Jeff Beck um, was a guy that was one of my biggest heroes and then I got to interview him and then hang out with him a bunch of times. And so I started working on this book of the book, the t tentative title of the book is the world on a string. Um, uh, ramblings of a wayward guitarist slash journalist on the path to musical salvation, something like that at the risk of the longest book title of all time. And, um, but that I thought was sort of a, would be a good uh, 
um, sort of delivery system for these stories, which is how do you find a way that's going to work for you? Like maybe you could, everybody could apply this to their own life in some sort of way. Like I'm going to find a way to, to participate in the things that I'm interested in and be useful and helpful and successful. So whatever successful is professionally and personally. And so I got the opportunity to do that as a good, as a musician, having to share the stage with Dickie Betts for 10 years. Well, what do you do? You're a sideman. What's your job? You know, your job is to be an agent of success in whatever, whatever that means. Some days you have to be a cheerleader. Some days you have to help lead the band. Some days you have to be the guy who, uh, Make sure he knows you got, you got to know your parts really well, be really reliable. But the, the more that spreads out, like if you play in a band where everybody in the band is a band leader in their own bands, and you have four band leaders in a band, it's the best band to be in because each guy is, has will, willfully taken so, on so much, you know, onto their shoulders responsibility wise and so anyhow that's what the book is about it's about having met these people and then you know communicating with them in a certain way and like you know then it leading to crazy things like Johnny Winter calling me and telling me he dreamt about me or you know like Jimmy Vaughn saying something really serious to me and then my response is so stupid, like purposely, like the dumbest thing anybody could say, just because I know that it, it will break the intensity of the moment. So I said something to him once, like we were standing next to each other and his wife said something to him that was very sweet. And then I just said something that was so stupid, like it was just a joke. And Jimmy just gives me this, el he goes, shut up. And he like elbows me. Like your big brother would do, you know, like he just elbows me like really hard in the chest. He goes, shut up. But on a certain level, I know that Jimmy appreciates that because he's famous, like people, they're used to people tiptoeing around them. Right. Like Johnny went to the same thing. He didn't like it if you disagreed with him about anything. We were on a rock cruise and it was the first day and I was sitting in his stateroom on the cruise ship. In um, ZZ Top, where the headliner, and it was Marshall Tucker, and it's all these different bands, and Dickie Betts, I was there with Betts, and Johnny Winter, Edgar Winter, and uh, Steppenwolf for one of the bands on the cruise. And of course, it was just John Kay, like everybody else was not an original Steppenwolf member, but it was Steppenwolf. So I said to Johnny, it's the afternoon, I go, hey, Johnny, um, Steppenwolf are playing tonight. I think I'm going to check them out. You know, I've never seen them. And he looks at me, he goes, Steppenwolf suck. They're corny. And I go, uh, well, yeah, you know, I guess they're corny. But I go, come on, man. John Kay, like that voice, like his voice is amazing. And Johnny's just looking at me. And like a minute and a half goes by. And then he goes, yeah, I guess he has a good voice. <laughs> uh, 
Like they're not used to. All right, but you asked about Jeff Beck. So getting to meet Jeff Beck, spend some time with him. I have so many stories, but I'll tell you one. Just so funny is before I got to interview him in 1999, I went to see him. He was sort of back. It was like sort of the beginning of his re-entrance with the album Who Else in 99. And then he started making records sort of every couple of years. He wasn't going 10 years between records. And I went to see him at Roseland in New York City. And because I'm a writer, I had VIP. Me and my drummer went. And we were up in the VIP. There was, at Roseland, there were two VIP sections. And the one on the left was upstairs above the stage. So you could actually be sort of on the stage side of the PA. So the band was right below you. And you weren't getting hit with the PA. You were just hearing the instruments off the stage. And Jeff was like right there. So it was, and there's his amp. So it was like an amazing you know, vantage point to see a show. Anyway, um, during the show, the, there's a guy in front of me. He's on the rail, so he has sort of the best spot. So we were just sort of right behind. And he he says, hey, man, like I have to take a leak. You know, hold my spot for me. And I go, sure. So he goes, and I'm on the rail, and then he comes back. And I go, here you go. I'll give him his spot again. And he was very drunk. And he goes, oh, do you guys want some drink tickets? And he holds out a ball of drink tickets. <laughs> so I was like, yeah. And so my drummer and I, we were like, waitress. So we had like 10 beers each, you know, like the Coneheads, you know. Yeah, yeah. And we got drunk. And... Uh, Stephanie, I believe her name was her name from Epic Records, had said to me before, she goes, if you want to meet Jeff, hang out in the VIP uh, section after the show, but you got to wait because there's people that I have to bring, you know, to see Jeff ahead of you. But just hang out, be patient. I promise you'll get to say hi. And I'm like, that would be fantastic. All right, now it's the end of the show. We're definitely drunk. And so I said, oh, well, we got to wait, you know, like Stephanie told us to wait. Like, let's go sit down somewhere. And so we found like these steps and then sitting turned into laying down and we were laying there. And all of a sudden I hear this voice. What are you doing? And it's Stephanie. And she's like, I was looking for you. Like, don't you want to meet Jeff? Like, he's going to leave. And, you know, like the first thing you do when you're drunk is pretend you're not drunk. Uh, uh, you know and so we get to the door of the dressing room and she goes listen Jeff can be kind of temperamental so you go in say hello and if it seems like he doesn't want to talk just say thank you and walk away that's it and I said got it she opens the door it's a small room. There's very few people in there. The band's in there. Billy Gibbons was in there. Um, few people. And Jeff was talking to some guy. So I go in the door and I'm like, you know, the buffer zone, like 10, 12 feet away from them. 
and I'm inebriated. And within less than a minute, the guy walks away and Jeff is standing there by himself. So I just run over to him and I throw my arms around him and I yell, I love you. And I am in a bear hug and I kiss him on the face. <laughs> and I think Stephanie had a heart attack. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. And Jeff goes, eek, like a woman seeing a mouse. <laughs> and he thought it was really funny. Because I have like a bear hugging him, kissing his face, you know. Oh, my gosh. And we ended up hanging out for like an hour and a half. And so for any Jeff Beck fan out there, this may, they might find this interesting. There are very famous pictures of him from 60, late 67, 68, where he doesn't have a shirt on. He's just got the white suspenders and he has a natural finish, Les Paul. Well, any Les Paul person knows there was no such thing as a natural finish, Les Paul. And so I asked him, I said, uh, I hope you don't mind me asking you this, but did you strip your Les Paul, you know, in 1967, 68, like whenever that was, you know, like, why did you have a natural finished Les Paul? And he goes, yeah, I did. And it was the stupidest thing I ever did in my life. And I go, was it like a gold top? And you wanted to see what the maple cap looked like? And he goes, no, it was a beautiful sunburst. He goes, I ruined it. And I go, well, then why'd you do it? He goes, because Mickey Baker, the jazz guitar player, had stripped his Les Paul. And at the time, stripping the finish off your guitar like John Lennon and George Harrison did with their casinos, like the famous, you know, rooftop guitar or revolution guitar that John Lennon is playing. It's natural finish because John stripped it. And that just became a thing, you know, like, oh, strip your guitar. It's going to sound better. Yeah. So anyway, it was just very funny. So Jeff says, yeah, he goes, I did it because Mickey, I like Mickey Baker's tone. And I thought <laughs> it was going to change the tone of my guitar and it didn't change the tone at all. And I had ruined my guitar. Yeah. And Jeff was just that kind of guy. Like he would, happily tell you a story like I'm an idiot. Like I did something that was really stupid. And if you go on my website, um, which is just andyaldrett.com, I did upload, there's an interviews link and there's five interviews I put up there. Um, Steve Ray Vaughan, Leslie West, Johnny Winter, Richie Blackmore, and Jeff Beck. And the print part is the first part just in text, but at the bottom is audio from the recordings, just a little excerpt. Yeah. And in Jeff's case, it's about a 10 minute excerpt from our conversation. And it's him talking about, I said in the fall of 66, when cream like happened, was that like the big trailblazing moment for like this new thing that was happening in music? And he goes, no, he said it was Jimi Hendrix showed up at virtually the same time, September, October, October of, uh, 
or late September of 66. And he goes, Jimmy reset all the rules in one night. Yeah. And so I encourage you and anyone else to listen to it because yeah. hearing it from Jeff's perspective. Yeah. And I wrote this long chapter about, you know, if, uh, if I, my book ever gets published, just that um, the first thing I said is there, there was no one on earth uh, like Jimi Hendrix. But truth be told, there was. And it was Jeff Beck. And Jeff Beck was that before Jimi Hendrix. And Jimi Hendrix was well aware of Jeff's recordings with the Yardbirds. And Jeff himself said to me that he met, when he first met Jimi, Jimi said, and he goes, and I wasn't wasn't out looking for compliments. But Jimi said to me, oh, I love your records with the Yardbirds and everything you did. It was very influential. And even said, I stole a lick from uh, a Yardbirds record from my new record for our experience. He didn't tell him what it was. I think it could be there's a descending line in Happenings 10 Years Time Ago that goes boom, ba no, 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 no. You know, it goes boom, no, 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 no. I'm singing out of tune. But during that part of the song, and the turnaround before the chorus of Love or Confusion goes, it's almost identical. Yeah, okay. Now, But Jimmy didn't tell Jeff what he meant. He just said, I stole a lick. From a Yardbirds record, from my new record. Yeah. And then he goes on to talk about their relationship. So for me, getting, I saw Jeff a variety of times. Forget it. You know, Jeff Beck. Yeah. He's got better and better and better and better. Yeah. I saw him in 1975 at Avery Fisher Hall on the Blow by Blow tour. Yeah. Um, so it's the same thing, like getting to, Talk on the phone. The day I interviewed Jeff on the phone, he was it was a conference call thing, and he was supposed to dial in. And we were all, you know, me and the manager and the record company were all on the conference line waiting for Jeff. And the manager goes, "Well, I don't know what's up with Jeff. Let me call him. We'll see what's happening." And they go away, and then they come back, and they go, "Jeff can't figure out how to dial in. So just here's his home phone number. Just call him at home." And I'm, John, I'm writing down, I'm thinking like, I am writing down Jeff Beck's home phone number on this piece of paper. Like, this is insane. Like the guy who I listened to Truth and Beck Ola over and over and over and over and learned every song. And, um, uh, and so, you know, just called him at home and, um, uh, and and so he we you know he he talked quite a bit about his how he and Hendrix became friends and um, uh, and then just getting to he was very funny very warm guy yeah. you know you could see it in all the interviews if you watch them 
you yeah. know. I love how Brian May, somebody like they asked Brian May, they said, you know, every story is, is he's very self-deprecating and he's very funny. Is Jeff aware, like, you know, like how he changed, you know, the world for guitar players? And Brian May said, oh, he's aware. <laughs> he's very it's kind of like don't kid yourself like like jeff knows it's not like jeff doesn't know yeah there's places that he he's as johnny a said uh last week when i interviewed him he said uh and he's about to embark on doing a, a jeff beck show called Beckola. he said here wow. having said all that this guy is uncopyable. Right. You know, he's, but he's not going to, he's just going to do his own, his best to be his own representation of Jeff's material. Well, I mean, that's terrific. You know, I've been doing these Jimi Hendrix tribute gigs lately um, for the last couple of years. I mean, for the last year, actually. And, um, you know, John, I tried to play Jimi Hendrix's music in bars in 1974, and, like, we would get thrown out. You know, like, nobody wanted to hear it. And now, it's amazing to me, 50 years later, like, everyone's singing along. Like, we... I'm happy to send you some of the recordings if you want to hear them, but, like, um, like, we play Who Knows? And the whole audience is singing. Yeah, all the words, like it blows my mind yeah. that I'm going. They don't know. <laughs> Do you know? Uh, all the time, been hanging around. All the time, hanging around. I did everybody think that's a yeah. Everybody, yeah. And the whole audience is singing along. Yeah. It's like. Or you can play Machine Gun and they love it. Yeah. You know, you're like, really? Like, I'm allowed to do this? Yeah. You know, Third Sun from the Sun and I go crazy, you know, and smashing my guitar against my amp and the mic stand and like doing these pick slides. And, yeah. you know, I just try to go out, man, like out and yeah. make these sounds on the guitar. And I'm looking at, my bandmates and they're looking at me like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> is this, this going to end? Like, are we going to go back to the song part yeah. at some point? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm looking at them like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Eventually. Yeah. So, um, that's great. You know, um, uh, you know, it's especially interesting, I think to do, I mean, there. I don't know anybody that's playing Hendrix's music. You know, I don't know where you can go and see someone play, replicate the entire R.E. Experience record. We did the mm -hmm. full-blown R.E. Experience record, the one that included all the other weird songs, you know, like 51st Anniversary. Um, uh, you know, the way R.E. Experience exists now with... All right, 51st anniversary. Can you see me? Stone free. Remember, yeah. Red House. You know, like all those songs weren't on the American um, 
I experienced. So I could tell you that 51st anniversary is a bitch to play. It's so confusing. Right. Um, but um, anyway, it's really neat because we'll do it now and people will be like, that was nuts. Yeah. Like I've never seen, especially for young people, like they, they've never even seen anybody like play that way. Right. Where it's getting feedback and putting your headstock against the amplifier and hitting the guitar and like just this bedlam. Like, like this is going to be, <laughs> you know, loud and messed up. And well, in the, in the, in an era of listening to things on your iPhone or, 99 cent apps or all the AI stuff to be in a, a room where you're feeling the air move and you get people, the, the more people crowded in, the better. And you're experiencing that the sound of tube amps and air moving. There's, I'm going to venture to guess there's no quad cortexes or no amp modelers on stage, any of that kind of stuff. It's probably Ampeg amp. There's a couple of pedals. It's just the, it's the old fashioned way. And I'm lucky because the musicians I play with that happen to be fantastic musicians. So, right. you know, the audience is getting to see a drummer. You know, my drummer's name is Sam Bryant. He toured for years with Kenny Wayne Shepherd and lots of different people. Sam's insane. Like, he's insanely amazing. Like, I'm on stage. And part of the reason for doing the gigs is I get to play with Sam. Yeah. You know? So, like, the audience, like, they could... Just watch Sam. My joke with Sam is that he's so good, no one else needs to show up. And so yeah. I'll say, hey, Sam, this weekend, like, no one's going. Yeah. Just go do the gig yourself. Because we, we're we superfluous, you know, like the drumming is so great. Yeah. And he'll go, don't do that, please. <laughs> I think my, my first exposure to you was uh, the mid-90s. I uh, Back of Guitar for the Practicing Musician magazine, I sent away from Andy Allador and the Pawn Kings uh, CD based on the recommendation of John Schofield. <laughs> I think he had posted a quote or something, or it was a small black and white thing in the back. Yeah, yeah I got a little ad. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I remember Groove listening. Kings. The Groove Kings. Not Kings. 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 Not, that's Kings Andy, right? Groove Kings. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was like, damn, that was... No, no, so really. did you get the did you get the record back then? Yeah, yeah. Do you like uh, it? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, in fact, I was, I was like, well, you know, because at that time, I I want to say it was the mid '90s, and that kind of that type of guitar playing was not something that you were. Other than the greats that we just mentioned, I wasn't hearing you. I wasn't discovering new guys doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, it was in '99, and it's true, like. And I could tell you that the record labels that I would send it to, their response was, well, there's nothing that, out there that's like this. Yeah. And I would say, and like, how, how is that a bad thing? Right. But, you know, like Steve Ray Vaughan, that was the case with him. And it was just a testament to, you know, him being so dedicated to being a road dog and, and making it happen that people couldn't help but say like this is extraordinary what i'm seeing is extraordinary yeah and next thing you knew you know 
they're selling records and people are coming to the shows and yeah and he as we were saying before you know people that knew him said this is the most unlikely person to become a success yeah and then he becomes a massive tremendous success um so you know when and i've decided you know to do these hendrix shows as a trio my first band was a trio but it's more it's most appropriate just guitar bass and drums just like hendrix and the bass player is roy de jesus and roy is a monster too so truthfully you could just listen to one guy like hendrix's music you could say it's about the guitar and there's a lot going on in the guitar and that's all true but it wouldn't have the impact that it needs to have without a great rhythm section. And so Sammy and Roy are like sick, like they're insane what they're doing. Like it's really something else. Mm-hmm. And so because they know what they're doing and they're really good musicians, it allows me sort of carte blanche. That's why I have my joke to Sam. I don't need to show up like the drumming is so good. Right. Like if I stop playing, like it's not like a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so anyhow, like, you know, uh, Johnny A is a great guitar player. So you know, for him to go play Jeff's music, it's really, really good. People will hear it. There's yeah. al- and there's always going to be people that don't know, like they don't know it. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, believe me, when we played 51st anniversary and remember. People were like, I know, I don't know what that is. Like, I never heard that in my life. Like, that's a Jimi Hendrix song. But they might say the same thing about "May This Be Love," you know? Right? Yeah, yeah. You I know? Re- yeah, I remember forgetting about that song, and I heard uh, Joe Satriani do it on a uh, Unplugs thing with Stevie Ray Vaughan. He came out and did. He and Jonathan Mover came out and did an acoustic thing of, uh, or no, it was actually Jewel Shear. Joe Satriani was, and the it was on this MTV Unplug thing, and the yeah, last Joe, Stevie, Stevie, much to Joe's chagrin, Satriani's chagrin. The story goes is that is that he agreed to do the show because they said you'll get to play with Steve Ray Vaughan. Oh, and then it didn't happen. And Joe, who's very funny and is another guy who's a wonderful guy. Immediately, he was like, what did I do wrong? Like, does Stevie hate me? You know, like, maybe he thinks I suck. <laughs> like, like, you know, like, why doesn't he want to play with me? Yeah. And then he realized later that maybe nobody even said to Stevie, like, right, maybe we Joe should play together. Like, it was like an assumption on his part. Right. He went straight to the insecure part. Like, right. he doesn't like me. Then yeah. later he went, maybe he didn't even know. Like, I don't know whether he decided, like, no, I'm not going to play with that guy. Yeah. Like, he was told, yeah, just come and play, like, a song on a 12-string. Yeah. You know, and you're good. Yeah. Wow. Well, we'll have to to do a part two sometime and talk about Joe, Steve, and uh, Holdsworth. Yeah, Alan, I wish I got to know better. I only did one interview with Alan. Um, did get to see him play. My, the, my favorite was when he played tracks, this tiny club in New York city in 1980. And I did see him with Tony Williams before that. 
yeah. at the bottom line, uh, probably on the Believe It Tour. So I don't know what year that was, maybe 77 or something. But um, I mean, Tracks was just this tiny place. And Alan had no record deal. He was selling the IOU record for $5. Yeah. Wearing the red IOU t shirt. out of a box. Wow. He wasn't wearing an IOU t shirt that night. Maybe he didn't have the t shirts yet. But I bought a record from him in a little tiny room behind the stage. But Eddie Van Halen and David Lee Roth were there to my memory. But, John, I was standing five feet from Alan. And it made it worse. Like it wasn't helpful. No. It actually made it more, much more confusing to stand right next to him and look at him and these sounds were coming out. Because either he had his hand out like this or he had his hand like this and it sounded the same. Right. Like the biggest stretch you could ever see or like his fingers were all tight together like this. And you yeah. can, can tell the difference. Yeah. And um, and then I did get to interview him once. And um, uh, Alan, who's like Alan, you know? Yeah. And I got to interview McLaughlin a few times. And, you know, um, so, sure, uh, I'm happy to. The, I have no shortage of stories, as oh, you can yeah. tell. Yeah, um, you. You've been incredibly... Uh, kind with your time and everything I had hoped and uh, wished that it would be. It's just aces. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate it. And um, uh, send me your email. I'll, I'll send you a couple of uh, things. Oh, and let me throw this in if it fits. I have a new album coming out. Oh, nice. Um, some people may know in 2021. I can't remember now. Let's call it uh, 2021. I put an album out called uh, Light of Love. And uh, it's on all streaming services. Double album, 18 songs. The songs span a 27-year period because it was just all material. Some was new. Some was from 30 years ago, 27 years ago. Um, that just I had, ne had never come out. And... Um, and the record is over uh, 400,000 streams. Oh, wow. Spotify, which is, it doesn't earn you any money, but I'm, I'm happy that people have listened to it. But I have a brand new record that's going to be out in about a month uh, called In a Dream. And this one's actually on a label. Uh, the label is Long Song Records out of Milan. Nice. And um, David Grissom, the guitar player, plays on one track. We did a cover of Albert King's Can't You See What You're Doing Me. And um, it's just a really fun record. Five originals, three covers. We do Polygap by Jimi Hendrix. Oh, and, no. <laughs> wow. That's Rainbow Bridge. Yeah. Well, Fabrizio Perisnota, the producer, he, he asked if I would do a cover of Polygap. So I yeah. did, it for, did it for him. Um, but the record's called In a Dream because three of the five original songs I dreamt. Oh, wow. I woke up and there they were. Yeah. And so the whole notion of um, dreaming music and, and music coming out of dreams. Johnny uh, wasn't in that dream though, right? Say what? Johnny Winter wasn't in that dream, right? Johnny Winter wasn't in any of the dreams, but 
one of the songs, which is called Hymn, H-Y-M-N. In the dream, I was listening to a live Almond Brothers album, and this song was on the album. Oh, wow. And in the dream, I was thinking, oh, I remember learning this when I was a kid, because it was like Dwayne era, Dwayne Allman era. Yeah. Almonds. Yeah. And then I woke up and I went, that's not an Almond Brothers song. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it doesn't even sound like an Almond Brothers song, like at all, really. But that one came out of a dream, like very specifically. And then the other ones also came out of dreams. And I've dreamt a lot of songs. I did have an interesting conversation recently with Warren Haynes about that. And he told me that he's dreamt a lot of songs. Yeah. And it's just really, I'll leave you with this. Uh, songs are kind of like dreams. Yeah. Because they are, they uh, invite you into this world that only exists because you've created it, you know, from some creative sensibility. But if it's a good song, like an effective song, then that world, that environment feels real to you. Yeah. You can sort of uh, uh, be embodied within the world of this song. All the best songs do that to you. And that's just like a dream. Because you in during the dream, you're like, this is all... I don't have a problem with the fact that the world is made of ice and there's you know, aliens, you know, ships landing, you know, in the dream, you're like, sure. Right. And so songs are kind of like that, you know, like if an effective song creates this world that you can invite the listener into and it's valid, it feels like a real place. Yeah. But it didn't exist uh, until the song was created, you know, so... So they go together. You know. Yeah. Excited to check that out. That's very cool. I'll send, I, I can send you the new record too. It's, it's going to be out in about a month. So I could send you a zip file so you can hear it. I'm, uh, I'm fairly new to the, uh, I've probably got about uh, seasons one and two of this uh, podcast. I've got maybe 16 uh, guests that I've had. Season three is shaping up to be the biggest one yet. I've already got 20, 20 folks. And it's just been an amazing blessing. So I'm still learning how to navigate the waters. Uh, and I've rarely asked this, but if um, if you think somebody like Warren Haynes would be uh, open to me sending him a very, uh, like an, an email invite to be a guest on the show, um, I don't know if he would be receptive to that or not, but. Uh... Uh, I mean, he just left on a European tour, so he's going to be busy for the next couple of months. Yeah. But I have no problem. I've done it many times. In fact, Andy Timmons, you know, because he's so great, you know, there's been a variety of people I've done podcasts with say, do you think you could get, would you mind asking Andy if he would consider being on my show? Yeah. And so I have no problem, you know, texting these guys and saying, I just did a podcast with this guy. It was great. He would love to have me on the show if you're interested. Yeah. But and either they, either they say yes or no. Yeah. He speaks very highly of you, uh, by the way, and he, he's because he knew that I was going to be interviewing you. And uh, 
on a video that got tens of thousands of uh, watches on that pedal show, they were joking about guitar players named Andy and he was rattling off. Yeah, there's Andy, the Andy Allador, and there's, you know, so you were in the list of, you were on his mind of great guitar players named Andy. Well, Timmons is something else, man. He's such a, I was supposed to do a thing with him today and we bumped it till tomorrow, but he's one of the video columnists for Guitar World. And it's really been a wonderful blessing to get to know him. He's a phenomenal musician, um, not just a phenomenal guitarist. You know, he's yeah. a great writer. And just, I can tell he's a very sharing and just a warm, kind, humble human being. You, you can't is. walk away. If you never heard him play a note, or yourself for that matter, you would say, man, what a cool guy. What a nice, down-to-earth guy. So it's that it's in that moment of humanity that you go, that that's what it's about, you know. No matter how well you play, it's it's always great to be, you know, a good person. David Grissom is another guy that comes to mind. Yeah, David's great, man. What a David David said to me once, I know I know enough about jazz to get in trouble. <laughs> and I said, You stole you stole my line. That's right. I, I have to check back in with it. I don't know if you heard he's got COVID. David has COVID right now. He, oh, well, that's, I, oh, about okay. a week ago, he he sent me a thing and said, "Hey, uh, I've got COVID right now. Let me uh, let me circle back around to you." So, ah, uh, bummer. No, uh, my wife and I just this morning were COVID's still around, man. Like it's not gone. It's a drag. She might she might get the new booster. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's a scary thing, but um, uh, uh um. All these guys, you know, they are the terrific guys and um, great players, and um, yeah, uh, you know, um, that's the thing, you know. Like, hey, I'll give you a Jeff Beck one that was great. Jeff Beck would say, or did say to me, he said, "If you find something cool on the guitar, you shouldn't give yourself any credit because it was already there. <laughs> like, it's all there without you." Right. What do you, yeah. The guitar, does, the guitar doesn't need you. Right. It's all there. Yeah. If you find it, then congratulations. Yeah. Don't pat yourself on the back. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that's a, a great way of thinking about it. It uh, pushes you forward to just realize that it's all there. You just have to find it. Yeah. And every day, you know, you look at the guitar and, it looks back at you and says, you know, can you, oh, I know what I was going to say because we were talking about people being humble. I got to meet uh, Jay Leno. Um, this is another whole topic, but, you know, with at the risk of, I know we should stop. Um, Paul Allen, who, you know, the guy who started Microsoft uh, with Bill Gates, he, he became a friend and he, uh, he was my guitar student and he was an amazing guy, an incredible person. And so he put together these cruises that my wife and I went on these two cruises and it was filled with incredibly famous people. Like, you know, we were like, why are we here? And so and one of them, Jay Leno was flown to Beijing or whatever, you know, just to do a set in front of this captive audience, you know, on this giant, beautiful cruise ship, Paul's private party. 
And then the ne- and it was Jay Leno. He was fantastic. And then the next morning, I was walking through the ship, and there was a reception desk, and he and his wife were standing there. And I went over to say hello, and, and they were both very nice, very nice. And I said, Jay, and I have a picture of us together, which is cool. I said, Jay, I go, man, like that was amazing last night, you know? I, I said, you did 90 minutes. It felt like five minutes. And he looks at me, he goes, it's usually the other way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like totally dead man. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's nice when people are just down to earth. It's a beautiful thing. I mean, Les Paul, I got to meet Les Paul. I sat with him at a Jeff Beck show at the BBB Kings. Just ended up in the same VIP booth with him. Yeah. It's freaking Les Paul, man. No, it doesn't. Yeah, for all the names we mentioned, it's it's for this to be the Guitar Hank podcast. He he kind of he and BB kind of sit at the top of the perch, I guess. Well, and you know, I mean, and what goes along with that is like you know he's just warm and funny and engaging, and you know, uh, I have a friend, um, named Mark Davin, who has a guitar radio show, and um. Mark said that he, the first time he, I believe something like this, the first time he met Les Paul, he said, I, I love you so much. You know, I think of you as my uncle. And Les said something like, how about buying your uncle a beer? <laughs> yeah, that sounds, sounds about right. <laughs> and he was like, it would be my pleasure. Yeah. That's such a great. Yeah, it's a great line. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm your uncle. <laughs> right. Yeah. Do your uncle a favor. Buy me a beer. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much, Andy, man. It's been a, a blast. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I love that we started off with Frank Zappa. Yeah. And um, send me your email. Yeah. I'll send you a whole variety of stuff. But really wonderful to meet you and talk to you today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. Have a great week. All right. You too. Talk to you again soon. Thanks, Andy. Thank you for tuning in to the Guitar Hang Podcast, interviews with noteworthy guitar players from around the world. Go ahead and hit the subscribe button and ring the bell for notifications to stay updated on our latest episodes.